The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. We'll read to the end of the chapter. See how far we can go this morning. Beginning in verse 31, Luke writes, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of the Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. There are two kinds of blindness in the world around us. There's physical blindness and there's spiritual blindness Physical blindness is pretty obvious. We know it when we see it. It's someone whose vision is physically impaired and they're not able to see the world around them. They operate physically in the dark. They require assistance and help from aides and from friends and from family because they cannot see where they're going. Spiritual blindness, on the other hand, is a whole different thing. Spiritual blindness afflicts those who have perfectly good physical eyes. But spiritual blindness affects the heart. It's the inability to see spiritual truth that comes from God. It's the inability, even in the face of clear and obvious facts, to perceive what's real and what's true and what's right and what's good. Physical blindness afflicts a lot of people in the world. The World Health Organization says there are about 2.2 billion people in our world who have some form of severe vision impairment. 2.2 billion people in the world. About 1 billion of those have a severe vision impairment that's either preventable or has been yet unaddressed. That's why there are ministries like Global Eyeglass Ministry, which seeks to go around the world helping those who suffer from physical blindness. On their website it says, Global Eyeglass Ministry 
partners with Bible-believing churches, sending mission teams globally by training and equipping them to conduct vision clinics that enrich their message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can even donate your old glasses to this ministry, and they'll send it to different parts of the world, some of those one billion people who have no way to address their impending blindness. It's wonderful that there are Christians who care about such things and are caring for people in the world who suffer from that because physical blindness is a terrible thing. But I'll tell you, spiritual blindness is a much worse affliction. It afflicts far more people and its effects are far more reaching. Physical blindness only affects our life here in this world and the expanse of time that we're alive here. Spiritual blindness affects all of eternity. Spiritual blindness, if not cured condemns a soul to hell. As we reach the conclusion of Luke chapter 18, we get to the end of of this section of Luke's gospel, we're going to see examples of both kinds of blindness. As Jesus uh, sort of makes his way toward his final trip to Jerusalem, he's going to run across a, a blind beggar on the side of the road who deals with physical blindness. But before that, he's going to have a conversation with his group of disciples who are suffering from the effects of spiritual blindness. They hear what he's saying, but they don't hear. They comprehend his words, but they don't understand the meaning. It's very clear because Luke makes it very clear to us at the, at the sort of in the middle of this passage in verse 34, where he says, speaking of the disciples, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. I mean, I don't think you could say it any more than three different ways. Like, they didn't get it. None of what he said. They were completely spiritually blind to what he was saying. Now, if you were to fast forward in your Bibles over to Luke chapter 24, and you were to get to the, sort of toward the end of the gospel, and we were to sort of transport to after the resurrection, Jesus appears to these disciples in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 44. This is what Luke records. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So while eventually the disciples are going to get it, their, their, their spiritual eyes are going to be opened and they're going to understand, when we're reading Luke 18 and they're encountering Jesus in this conversation, they do not get it. They don't see it and they don't understand what he is saying. And it provides for us, I think, a very intentional contrast that Luke is trying to make for us here at the end of chapter 18. He wants us to see a man who physically cannot see a thing, but spiritually his eyes are wide open and he sees it all and perceives everything compared to a band of disciples who've had a lot of evidence in front of them whose eyes work perfectly well, but spiritually they can't see a thing. And so that's the contrast he's building. And so Jesus gathers with his disciples here, and he begins to have a conversation with them. It's been a while in Luke's gospel since Luke has told us that Jesus speaks specifically to his disciples, but here he does so. He takes the twelve and he says to them something very, very specific. Very specific. 
things that he said before and more. He says, first, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. All the way back in Luke chapter 9, you can remember, if you've been with us, that we were told in verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, that Jesus set his face to what? To Jerusalem. He turned his attention toward the city of Jerusalem, and from Luke chapter 9, verse 51, to verse 18, or to chapter 18, where we find ourselves this morning, Everything that's happened along the way has been Jesus making his way toward Jerusalem. He's been heading toward Jerusalem, not just for a visit to the city, because it's going to be in that city where he lays down his life as a substitutionary sacrifice for his people. There's an awful lot of things that have happened along the way, but now they're in the home stretch. They're going to make one stop briefly in Jericho, and that's going to be just an overnight stop. And after that, they're going to make the trip to Jerusalem. Jericho is only about 18 miles from Jerusalem. The change in elevation we've mentioned before is about 3,300 feet. So going up to Jerusalem from Jericho is literally going up to Jerusalem. Very narrow roads through the mountains, steep, narrow desert roads. It's dangerous. People traveled in groups because there were robbers and thieves along the way. And it is that stretch that Jesus and his disciples are about to take for the very last time. But they stop in Jerusalem, and, and he, I mean, excuse me, in Jericho, and here in Jericho, uh, he's going he's gonna to have one last miracle. He's going to redeem one particular notorious sinner, and we're going to read about that in the beginning of chapter 19. But after that, the events of the Passion begin to unfold very, very quickly. Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem. There are going to be no more healings. Apart from one Roman soldier and one dying thief, there are going to be no more testimonies of salvation. Darkness is going to descend and events are going to unfold. And the Son of God is going to lay down his life on a Roman cross where he's going to die for the sins of all who believe. But before all that starts, Jesus takes one last opportunity to gather with his disciples and to talk with them. And to tell them things that they need to hear. He needs to remind them where they're heading. He needs to elaborate on some things that he said before. And more than anything, I think he's preparing them for what is about to unfold in front of them. He knows how painful and how confusing and how disturbing all of the events that are about to unfold are going to be for these dear friends of his. And he wants to assure them that everything that is about to happen has been planned in eternity past. He wants them to know for sure as things unfold that God has planned every step of the way from this moment to the cross, to the grave, to the resurrection. And everything that happens is going to play out exactly the way God planned it. Not one single detail is going to happen by happenstance. There's not going to be one single event that takes place that's going to take God by surprise. Every single thing that happens is going to happen exactly as God's planned it. And everything that begins to unfold here is precisely the reason why he has come. And they need to know that. They don't understand it now. They will eventually understand it. By the time we get to Luke 24 and he tells them they're going to look back and they're going to remember this conversation and it's going to come alive to them in ways that it doesn't the first time. So we're going up to Jerusalem, he says, and then he says something very, very important. He says, everything that is written, everything that is written by the prophets is going to be accomplished. 
Here again, Jesus is saying this because he wants them to know. It's all written. God has already planned all of this out. Because as things develop, as you watch the disciples as we move forward, you're going to see they're unsettled. You're going to see they're afraid. You're going to see them running away. You're going to see them in distress. You're going to see them in confusion because they don't get it. But Jesus is saying to them, listen, everything that's about to happen is going to happen in order to fulfill what was written by the prophets. Everything that the prophets have written is going to be fulfilled. Now, Jesus has said things similar to this before, but this is the fourth time that he now in Luke's gospel, at least, tells them about his coming suffering and his death. And he wants to remind them he is just not winging it. All of this is planned. All of this falls under the sovereignty of God. Everything that is going to happen was planned. Everything that the Old Testament said the Messiah would do, he's going to do every bit of it. Not some of it, but all of it. Now, when we look to the Old Testament prophets, both the, the, the major and the minor prophets, both in various ways point us to Christ. And both, in many ways, talk to us about the suffering and the death and the resurrection that is to come. Sometimes they do it in very clear and overt ways, and other, other times they do it in more subtle ways. But combined together, they give us remarkable detail about what it's going to look like when the Messiah comes and he suffers and he dies. It's never seen more clearly, I guess, than in the prophet Isaiah. We don't have time this morning really to do a full sort of look at everything that the Old Testament prophets had to say about the sufferings and death of Christ. But I want you to see enough to know the extent of detail that this was planned and known beforehand. And Isaiah makes it very clear. Isaiah 52, we see there in Isaiah 52 verse 14 a picture of the physical brutality of the death of Jesus that is coming. Isaiah writes, as many were astonished at you, speaking of this suffering servant, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The suffering of the Messiah was going to be a brutal, physically brutal event. And Isaiah knew it and he saw it. And he said there's going to be in the midst of all of this, this this, this physical brutality where the Messiah is going to be brutalized beyond human semblance. We flipped a couple chapters over in Isaiah, or just one chapter over in Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 3, we read this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah tells us that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to be pierced for our transgressions. He's going to be bruised for our iniquities. In verse 7, simply tells us he was oppressed and he was afflicted, and he opened not his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that's before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And you know the story of the Passion. Jesus stands before the Roman governor, Pilate, who demands that he give an account for who he is, whether he's the Son of God or not. And what does Jesus do? He does not open his mouth. Why? Because he's come to fulfill all that the Old Testament prophets had written about the Messiah. And Isaiah said that he would stand like a sheep before his shearers, silent. A couple verses down in verse 9 of Isaiah 53. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Jesus made his grave with the wicked and he was crucified between two thieves. With a rich man in his death. Because instead of his body being tossed in the city dump like most crucified people were, Joseph of Arimathea came along, a rich man, and offered up his tomb in which he was buried, fulfilling Isaiah 53, 9. If you flipped a few pages from Isaiah to the end of the prophets, you would get to the prophet Zechariah. And Zechariah speaks to us, and he tells us very clearly about both the triumphal entry and the crucifixion in Zechariah 9, 9. We find these words, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, And having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. The triumphal entry was told by the prophets. Jesus will fulfill that. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him. Is there a better description of what takes place at the cross than Zechariah 12.10? Beyond the writings of the prophets, though, Zechariah, Isaiah, we could look at Ezekiel and many of the other prophets. Besides those who held the position of prophet, really the whole of the whole testament in many ways prophesies and points us to Jesus and his suffering and death. We see it all the way back at the very beginning of the Old Testament, don't we? Nearly as soon as sin enters humanity's experience, we see very clearly God's already got a plan of redemption and he makes it visible. We see it all the way in Genesis 3.21. You remember Adam and Eve had sinned and they're, they're dealing with God. They're having to, to, to meet their maker, if you will, and deal with the sin that they've committed in the midst of the description in Genesis of what took place in all of that. We find Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. Even though God had told them, if you eat from the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Adam and Eve are not killed for their sin. God does not kill them, even though they deserved death. Instead, animals are killed and garments are made to cover them. And it becomes for us really the first object lesson and the first clear view of what is to come and what God has planned. And his plan involves the reality that sin is covered by the death of the innocent. It is a picture of what's going to happen at the cross. And when Jesus Christ lays down his life on the cross, he is fulfilling the picture of Genesis 3.21, showing what it looks like for the innocent to die in the place of the guilty to cover their sin. 
If you flip from Genesis 3 a little further over in your Old Testament, you would come to the Old Testament law. And the Old Testament law, really in all of its totality, was meant to show people how far they fell short of perfect righteousness. It was to show them what perfect holiness looked like. It was to show them how much they needed a Savior. It was intended to cause them to long for a Savior who could come and perfectly fulfill the law on their behalf. To do for them what they could never do. And Jesus comes, and in His perfect obedience, even obedience unto death, He perfectly fulfills the law for the people. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament in every way right up through his death. The sacrifices of the Old Testament law, the animals that were slaughtered over and over and over and over and over and over, week after week after week, all of them pointed to a full and future sacrifice who would come and once and for all die for the sins of his people permanently. When Jesus dies on the cross, he's fulfilling all of that. Even the Passover, maybe even particularly the Passover, the, the celebration of the Israelites where the, the blood of lambs was, was, was spread on the doorpost and the lentils of their home so that the death angel in Egypt would pass over. The lamb's blood was only a, a temporary savior that saved that generation of children on that particular event. But it pointed to a future lamb who would be sacrificed. It pointed to one whose death would come and not just save them from physical death once, but his death would save their eternal souls forever. Jesus in his death and sufferings fulfills the picture of the Passover. You flipped over a few more pages in your Bible, you'd find yourself in the Psalms. And the Psalms speak over and over and over again to the reality of the sufferings and death of the Messiah. No better example than Psalm 22. Right in the very beginning of Psalm 22, verse 1 We see the psalmist saying these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from my words of my groaning? Where do those words, where are they heard again? They're heard on the cross from the mouth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They were a prophecy of the Messiah and his death. Perfectly fulfilled in Christ to the word. In verses 6 through 8 of Psalm 22, but I am a, a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, and they make mouths at me, and they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. As the events unfold at the cross, you can hardly picture a more apt description of what takes place. Verses 14 and 15, I'm poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to, the, to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Even to the detail of his extensive thirst is it prophesied what's going to happen in Psalm 22. All the way down in verse 16, they pierced my hands and my feet. Again, a clear description of the crucifixion of Jesus. Psalm 16.10 speaks to us of the resurrection. Psalm 41.9 tells us this. Even my close friend whom I've trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. I mean, a prophecy of Judas and what he's going to do even at the Lord's table and his betrayal. Verses 
Right there in Psalm 41.9. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, everything, all that the Old Testament has to say about the Messiah is about to be fulfilled in these next days as we go to Jerusalem. But they do not get it. And the dots don't connect. But they will later. He says, everything that the prophets have, have written will be fulfilled perfectly. And he goes on to say, here's what's going to happen more specifically going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. He's talked to them about what's going to happen before, but this piece is new. And he says very specifically to them that I am going to be handed over to the Gentiles. When we get there, the Gentiles are going to be involved with this. Even though the Jewish religious leaders are the ones who have been plotting his death, he's ultimately going to be handed over to the Romans because the Jewish religious establishment does not have the power to convey the death penalty. They need the Romans to do that. And so Jesus is going to be handed over to Pilate, the Roman governor. He's going to be carted off to Herod, the king, and brought back to Pilate again. Because in order to be killed, Pilate and the Romans have to be involved. And so he tells them this is going to happen. In Mark chapter 15, verse 1, we read this. As soon as it was, it was morning, the chief priests held a consult consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, and they led him away to be delivered over to Pilate. Jesus said, I'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. That's exactly what happened. He said, I'm going to be mocked, and I'm going to be shamefully treated and spit upon. After Jesus is arrested, he isn't immediately killed. You know the story. There are the corrupt trials before the Sanhedrin and the high priest. But then he's sent over to Herod and back to Pilate again. And in the midst of all of this moving and shaking and, and making its way to the end, the whole time he's being mocked and he's being spit upon and he's being abused. And he tells him this is going to happen. Mark records it for us in Mark 15, beginning in verse 16, where we read, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. And they called together the whole battalion. They clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him. And kneeling down in homage to him. Then I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be shamefully treated. I'm going to be spit upon Then he says, and after flogging him, he'll die. Jesus knew the physical torture that was in front of him. He knew he was going to be bearing the full weight of God's wrath on the sins of all of his people. And he knew he was going to be bearing that in his body. One of the most horrific examples of this is the flogging that he endured before his crucifixion. Commentator by the name of Mattoon writes this. He says, Flogging or scourging was a brutal form of punishment which sometimes led to death. The victim was stripped of his clothes and tied to a post in a bent position. He was beaten with a whip with numerous leather strands which were about 18 to 24 inches in length. These strands were embedded with metal, bones, or glass and were tipped with hooks. The names scorpion or cat of nine tails were given to these whips. And many times the scourging was not done by one man, but by a team of men that would take turns so they could rest. 
The skin on the sides of the person who was whipped was shredded, exposing muscle and bone. Severe blood loss and dehydration afflicted the one being whipped. And many times they ended up dying. Under Jewish law, a person could be lashed not more than 39 times, but under Roman law, there was no limit to the lashing. Scourging was used, he writes, to weaken the person for crucifixion. Without scourging, a strong condemned man might survive on a cross for several days. Jesus says, I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be treated shamefully. I'm going to be spit upon. And I'm going to be flogged. Matthew chapter 27, verse 26. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus or flogged him, delivered him to be crucified. Jesus says after the flogging, they're going to kill the Son of Man. This was the apex of his mission. He came to lay down his life as a sacrifice. He came to give his life as a ransom. He came to die so that we might live. And Jesus tells his disciples this is going to happen. Luke records it for us in Luke 23, verse 33, when he says they came to the place that is called the skull, and there they crucified him, and the criminals on one on the right and one on the left. Then down to verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Son of man is going to be flogged and he's going to die. But Jesus knew that wasn't the end of the story. He says, and on the third day you'll rise. He knew his Old Testament and he knew the psalmist had already said that he would not be delivered over to Sheol and he would not rot in the grave. He knew that he was going to defeat death and defeat hell and defeat the grave and he's going to rise victorious. And so he tells his disciples, listen, all this is going to unfold, all these horrible things, flogging, mocking, spitting, beating, crucifixion, death, but, but it's all leading somewhere. I'm going to rise victorious on the third day. Luke records that for us when he tells us the women went to the tomb. On Resurrection Sunday, in verse 6 through 8, we're told they met a, 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 an angel there who says to them, He's not here, but He's risen. Remember how He told you while He was still in Galilee? That the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered His words. Here's what's going to happen, men. And they show up at the tomb, and the angel says, Don't you remember what He said? Don't you remember it's happening exactly the way he said it would happen? And they remembered his words. As we begin our study of the passion of Christ and the months ahead, we have to go through our close look at these events with a clear understanding that every single moment and every single event was planned by God from the foundation of the world. There was no accident. 
It was all written about beforehand, and Jesus said, I'm going to come and I'm going to do exactly what God has said is going to happen. I'm going to do what the Bible says I'm going to do, and he does those very things. God has planned to redeem his people, and he executes that plan of redemption to perfection. Wow. The disciples don't get it. Again, they didn't understand any of these things. They didn't understand any of it. They were completely blind to the reality. And so they head toward Jericho. And as they get to Jericho, there is a blind man sitting on the side of the road begging a blind beggar, which is what all blind people were, beggars, because they were outcasts. They were seen as deserving of their blindness as part of God's judgment for their sin. So they were outcasts and they were thrown away and their only hope was to sit on the side of the road and hold out their little basket and beg. And so this particular beggar is at a busy intersection on the road to, from Jericho to Jerusalem, a very busy road, maybe like the people to somewhat that you see in our culture who stand on the busy intersections with a basket and ask you for help. Matthew tells us there's two blind beggars Mark tells us that the one who speaks is called Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus hears the crowd and he hears something unusual going on and he begins to ask people, hey, what's going on around here? It seems a little crazier than usual. And somebody tells him, well, it's crazier than usual because Jesus of Nazareth is passing through. And we don't know what Bartimaeus knew about Jesus of Nazareth, but we know that he knew enough to know that he's more than just a man from Nazareth because he cries out to him, Jesus, son of David, he doesn't say anything about Jesus of Nazareth. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It's a messianic title from the Old Testament. He's screaming at the top of his lungs because he knows he's probably heard of Jesus healing the blind and healing the lame and healing the demon-possessed and healing anybody and everybody that's brought to him. And he knows that he doesn't have a doctor he can go to. His only hope is this guy who's passing through that he's the Messiah, and that he might actually heal him. It's his only chance. And so he's screaming at the top of his lungs. And much like the parents bringing their children to Jesus earlier, the crowd around him is saying, why don't you just shut up and leave Jesus alone? Nobody wants to hear from people like you. But Bartimaeus is a great guy. He says, I love this guy. He says, you want me to shut up? How about this? I'm going to scream louder. And that's exactly what he does. Jesus! I mean, he makes a scene until Jesus hears him. He makes a scene until Jesus hears him, doesn't he? And Jesus, we're told, stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. Mark tells us this in Mark 10, 49. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up. He's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. I suspect that man's never heard better words in his life than that. Take heart. Get up. He's calling you. It's a picture of salvation, isn't it? That's what's happened to anybody who's ever been saved by the mercy and grace of Jesus. They've recognized that they are a person who has no hope at all and that their only hope is to throw themselves purely on the mercy of Jesus who might save them. Not because they have merit, not because they deserve it, not because they've earned it, but only because he's merciful and loving and gracious and condescends to those who can't help themselves. And so they cry out to him, have mercy on me, son of David. And they hear in response the most beautiful words ever, get up, he's calling you, come on. If you're a Christian here, that happened to you at some point. Somewhere or another, you cried out to Jesus. 
And the door was open for you to get up and come to him. And you did that. Just like Bartimaeus did on that road. Blind men never heard anything more beautiful than that. Jesus heals him. What do you want me to do? Let me recover my sight. Recover your sight, Jesus says. Your faith has made you well. Jesus mentions faith here because he's healing a lot more than this man's eyes. He cries out to him as the Messiah to not only cure his eyes, but his messianic belief, his faith in Jesus as the son of David redeemed his soul in response. Jesus never required faith for physical healing. He healed anybody. He healed the multitudes. People, they just brought lines of people to him and he healed them all. But salvation, that's a different story. We know this man received more than just his eyesight because it said that he recovered his sight and he follows Jesus, glorifying God. The two things that happen in the man's life after this event is he becomes a disciple who obeys Christ following him and he's worshiping. Evidence of saving faith. Blind disciples and a blind beggar. It's a stunning contrast. But it's a contrast we're thinking about. You might be here this morning and you've never confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe like the disciples, you've heard about it a lot of times. You've heard over and over and over the gospel. And people have talked to you about Jesus dying for your sins. And people talking to you about what it means to confess and to repent of your sin and to entrust your lives to Jesus. And you've nodded your head along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. I get that. But you don't get it. And you didn't get it. And it made no sense to you. Because you're spiritually blind. Just like the disciples on this day. They heard him but they didn't understand. But maybe today is the day of salvation for you. Maybe today is the day that you hear the words from Jesus. Get up. Come on. I'm calling you to me. Come to me. Repent of your sin. Bow before my cross. Give me your life. I'll save you. Why would you not spring up and run to Jesus this morning? The one who fulfilled all of the Old Testament. The one who was mocked and beaten and spit upon. The one who was flogged for you. The one who died for you. Won't you come to him this morning? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we marvel at you and what you've done for us. Every time we think about the cross, we're amazed all over again. Every time we think about your flogging, our minds are revulsed by that reality that you, the perfect son of God, would suffer in that way for us. As we hear about and read about your face being punched and your beard ripped out and a crown of thorns on your head. People spitting on your face in derision. Enduring the full wrath of God in every way, physically, emotionally, spiritually, for us.
we see what we deserve. We see it because you took it. And our hearts overflow with gratitude. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for us. Thank you for absorbing the wrath of God on our behalf. Thank you for being our substitute. As we approach this table, Lord, this morning, we remember these things because we want never to forget them. We pray that as we do it, Lord, we would do it with clean hearts and clean minds that you would forgive our sins and cleanse us of any unrighteousness so that we can honor you well as we approach this table and not desecrate your body and your blood. But we pray you would, Lord, renew and refresh our love and gratitude for you and what you've done for us. And it would become real to us again, Lord, that our hearts would overflow with gratitude and rejoicing at you, our Savior, and what you've done for us. Meet us here at this table, Lord, we pray for your glory and it alone. Amen.